Christian faith. I am your host, Harold Felder, and today is a continuation of last week's show, The 12 Points That Prove Christianity Is True. I have with me as a guest, Lanny Wilson. Lanny is a student at Southern Evangelical Seminary, and he's pursuing a Master's of Arts in Apologetics with a concentration in philosophy. He actually taught the 12 points at Southern Evangelical Church Institute of Biblical, Biblical Studies, and he's also teaching courses on biblical doctrine and theology. And last week, we basically started the 12 points. We went through half of the 12 points. Yeah. Uh, I just cap, recap what the 12 points are. They are truth about reality is knowable. The opposite of true is false. It is true that the theistic God exists. If God exists, then miracles are possible. Miracles can be used to confirm a message from God. The New Testament is historically reliable. The New Testament says Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus' claim to be God was miraculously confirmed, therefore Jesus is God. Whoever, whatever Jesus teach is true. Jesus taught that the Bible is the word of God. Therefore, it is, it is true that the Bible is the Word of God. And these are the 12 points that basically gives an overview and a defense of the whole Christian faith. We started at 6, which is the New Testament is <laughs> historically reliable. I'm going to let you go ahead and do that again. All right. Hopefully this time we can actually get through the 12 points <laughs> and maybe, it's, yeah. maybe even some objections. Okay? Uh, maybe. We'll All see right. what happens. All Number right. 6, the, the New Testament is historically reliable. All right. Last time we covered that there are many documents, and so we know that the uh, what the... Uh, author said. So there's not really any uh, disagreement over what the authors themselves said. Now part of the uh, issue is when were these documents written? How far af or how much time after the events themselves of let's say the, uh, the crucifixion and resurrection did these things take place? Because the more time you have the more uh, chance there is of legendary development. Most uh, scholars hold that the, uh, the Gospels were written after 70 AD. I'm not a big fan of that date for a couple reasons. Uh, I think it's a little late. It's based on an anti-supernaturalism. Uh, the reason they give a post-70 dating is because Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple. And they, they say, well, since predictions of this type are not possible, therefore yeah. it must have been written after the fact. Well, that just assumes that Jesus didn't predict the yeah. destruction of the temple. But why should we assume, assume that at all? You know, I don't see any reason to do that. That's a philosophical presupposition that needs to be challenged. And we have really good evidence to think that the Gospels were written before then. For example, the book of Acts is the uh, telling of how the early church came. And what's fascinating about Acts is Luke was an amazing historian as documented by Colin Hammer in his book, Acts in the Setting of Hellenic History. And he shows over hundreds of details that Luke gets correct uh, on trade routes, depths of the ocean, and certain which way the prevailing winds. I mean, it's just amazing uh, the type of detail he goes into. And he's so good on things, and it's amazing what he doesn't cover in his book. He doesn't cover the fall of Jerusalem. He doesn't mention the death of James, which even Josephus does in, as being in 62 AD. He doesn't mention the death of Paul. He spends most of the book talking about Paul and he doesn't record his death. Yeah. And so this right here seems pretty inexplicable that he doesn't mention any of these things. 
And the best uh, illustration I can think of to explain that is imagine if you were reading a biography of John Fitzgerald Kennedy and the book ends and he's still in office, what would you conclude? You would conclude that he hadn't gone to Dallas yet and been assassinated. Right. Well, why shouldn't we assume the same thing with Acts? Yeah. It seems perfectly reasonable, but now Luke claimed that he used other material. You know, Luke 1, 1 through 4. Most people think that he held, uh, uh, was using Matthew or Mark or both. But if that's the case, then Matthew and Mark are even earlier than Luke. But yeah. Luke can be dated to about 62 AD or Acts in 62 AD at the latest because he's not including the death of James. And we know when that happened. So if that's the case, then you have Luke written in 60 or 60 or 61. And then you have Matthew or Mark written in the mid 50s because you got to have time for dissemination right. of this gospel. So we have gospels that are written within 30 years after the events. Well, that's well within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses that yeah. have in, you know, gone through these impact events. I mean, it's extremely important. Now, part of the problem too that we want to deal with is well, we know what they said. We know when they said it. Is what they said true? What would be things that we would look for to know if what these writers said were true? And I think there's about 10 things we can look for. Number one, do they include embarrassing details about themselves in these Gospels? Well, yeah. I mean, in the Gospels, the disciples are, you know, shown to be, you know, dim-witted, yeah. unbelieving, unfaithful. They're shown to be everything that if you were writing a biography, you know, autobiography, would you include these things? The Son of God calling you Satan. Right. No, that'd be something I'd, you, hey, you know, out. yeah, gloss that over. You know, don't, don't include that. Well, so that's one. So if you include embarrassing details, what about embarrassing details of the person that you're trying to get people to follow? Jesus, they yeah. include embarrassing details about him. His family thought he was insane. If you were trying to convince people to believe in Jesus, would you include that detail about Jesus? Yeah. Well, probably not. Not unless it actually happened. Well, not only that, they include difficult sayings of Jesus. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Hey, Jesus, come on. You know, get, get with it. You know, I, I'm a fallen human. Okay, yeah, I can accept that, but be perfect? Right. Come on. Yeah. You don't include these things unless those those are the case. They left in demanding studies of Jesus, which is uh, very much the same thing. Uh, they were very careful to distinguish their words from Jesus. I mean, the thing is that if you just took a Bible and gave a, uh, let's say a 15 year old, a highlighter and said, go through and highlight, you know, a non-red letter edition, highlight the words of Jesus, they should be able to do that throughout the entire Bible. There might be a couple places where they're kind of confused, but vast majority of it, right. the writers are very careful about Jesus said this, disciples said this. Right. And that's important because if you're making up history, hey, just make Jesus say this right here as yeah, well. Yeah. You know, so uh, even Paul uh, uh, makes that distinction. Not only that, they, uh, whenever we get to the resurrection, we'll get to a couple things they would not have included. So we'll talk about that here in a minute. They also include 30 historical persons. If you're making up fiction, you don't include historical persons. Luke 3, 1 through 2 lists like eight or f uh, about eight people, I think, eight or ten people that, hey, whenever you, uh, you know, that's historical crosshairs. This happened at this time with these people in charge. You don't do that if you're making up the story. Also, the writers left in divergent details. Was there one angel at the tomb or two angels at the tomb? You know, if you're trying to make up a story, you were trying to smooth out those type of right. obvious right. discrepancies. But they left those in. Well, why? Well, because this eyewitness said one, this eyewitness said two. Now, he didn't say only one or uh, so forth, but uh, you, get, you get the point. 
Now, not only that, did the writers also challenge their readers to search these things out. Paul does that in 1 Corinthians 15. Hey, if you don't believe me, ask these 500 people that also witnessed the resurrection. Well, you don't say that unless it actually happened. You don't do that with things that are fake. They also describe miracles in simple, unembellished accounts. He healed a man. You know, man was born blind, he healed him. The resurrection is very simple you know, in comparison to, let's say, like the apocryphal gospel of Peter. I mean, it's very fanciful. You know, you got everybody surrounding Jerusalem is around the thing. A cross comes out of the tomb and announces yeah. the resurrection. I mean, it, it gets pretty fantastic. Like a foot cross or something crazy like that, too. Yeah, yeah, the, the person's head reaches above the sky. Yeah. The cross talks. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, so you get yeah, some yeah, pretty yeah. weird stuff. And that's the type of stuff legend is. If you read, let's say, uh, gospel, any of the gospels, and it is strikingly sparse and simple in comparison. Also, the writers abandoned long-held traditional beliefs. They abandoned the animal sacrifices, the law of Moses. They abandoned the strict monotheism and option of Trinitarianism. It's kind of, uh, you know, that's a big one. Yeah, and they also changed the one. Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. Yeah. And so these things were the type of beliefs that gave them their national identity, and yet they yeah. changed it overnight. They went 1,500 years believing that, and this is the way to heaven, and all of a sudden they're going to give it up. Right. And so because of these facts, we can uh, reasonably conclude that the New Testament writers were being honest in what they were saying. Now, what did they say about Jesus? What did Jesus claim about himself, and what did they claim? Well, a couple things. They record that Jesus claimed to be Yahweh himself, John 8:58. They Jesus claimed to be equal with God in healing people, in being judged, John 5:20 20 through 27. Uh, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah God, Mark 14, 61 through 62. I mean, the high priest ended up tearing his robe because Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. And, you know, they understood that as a claim to deity. Now, Jesus also claimed to be God by accepting worship. I mean, on multiple occasions, people worshiped. He never rebuked anybody for worshiping him. Now, isn't one of the Ten Commandments worship only God? You know, it's kind of Lanny's paraphrase, but yeah, you're only supposed to worship God. Why is Jesus accepting worship? Even the angels are said to have worshipped him in Hebrews. Not only that, uh, he was claimed to have equal authority with God. He's going to judge the world. You know, he is the one that uh, his, he said his words would never pass away. Well, those are claims that God makes. His use of parables showed that he thought that, you know, he was God. He put himself in positions that traditionally had been assigned to God. For example, uh, he had been in images of shepherd, rock, uh, landowner. Those right there are positions that God is in. Yeah. And yet he placed himself in those positions. And he also requested prayer in his name. You're not supposed to pray anybody but to God. So it's pretty clear in the New Testament Jesus claimed to be God. Now also, what did the, the, the disciples and writers of the New Testament claim about Jesus? Well, they claimed that he was deity. You know, they gave him the titles of deity. You know, the first and last, the bridegroom, the redeemer, forgiver of sins, the savior. In the Old Testament, these are titles assigned to God. And yet now they're assigning them to Jesus. They also claim Jesus was the Messiah God. Uh, for example, they called him Emmanuel. Uh, they assigned the uh, Ze uh, Zechariah uh, passage talking about God would be pierced. They assigned that twice to Jesus. And so uh, it was pretty clear that they thought Jesus was the Messiah God. Okay. They attributed powers of deity to Jesus. They associated God's name with Jesus' name. They considered Jesus superior to angels. And they even called him God on multiple occasions. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, that, that brings us to the eighth point then. Because eighth point. Jesus made a lot of claims 
did, said a lot of things, and the A point is Jesus' claim to be God was miraculously confirmed. So he yes. said he was God. Unique convergence of miracles and prophecy culminating in his resurrection. And the resurrection is really the one that I want to uh, focus on because if he, his claim for, uh, to be deity is going to be true at all, and he said, you know what, everything I'm saying about God is true, and what's going to happen is I'm going to be killed, and God's going to raise me from the dead to verify my claim to deity and everything that I'm saying. Wow, that's a pretty big claim. And if he actually did rise from the grave, that confirms the rest of his message, yeah. that he is God and, and so forth. All right, well, what is the evidence that we have uh, dealing with the resurrection? Number one, Jesus predicted his resurrection on multiple occasions. You know, they're going to kill me and um, the, this temple is going to rise again. And they say it was the temple of his body. All right, well, number one, Jesus died. Uh, on the eve of the Jewish Passover, uh, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate and buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, crucifixion works by asphyxiation. Uh, a lot of people say Jesus just swooned on the cross. Not likely because you die on the cross by not breathing. You, you can't. Swoon. Yeah, a swoon theory means that a lot of people hold that Jesus didn't die, was placed in the tomb, was revived, and then, you know, walked out of the tomb that way and then convinced his disciples that he'd been resurrected. Uh, that doesn't work with crucifixion because you die by not breathing. I don't care what type of snake poison you imbibe. I don't care what you do. You can't fake not breathing for very long. Right, right, right. That and we're also we're told in John that he was also stabbed in the side with a spear. If you can survive a spear through the heart and lung, hey, you know, that's, that's pretty good. You know, so that he died almost everybody accepts. Um, Joseph Arimathea, we're told in the Gospels, is a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the very court that condemned Jesus to die. And so it seems strange that uh, the early Christians would have said that Joseph Arimathea would have buried him in the tomb unless it happened. Because as a, you know, as the court that condemned him, if it wasn't true, the court could just call him out. It's like, Joseph Arimathea, who in the world is that? He didn't bury him. We don't even know who Joseph Arimathea is. So the fact that they include somebody from the enemies as doing what is right by Jesus uh, makes him an unlikely Christian fiction. Now also, uh, on the Sunday following Jesus' crucifixion, the tomb that in which he was buried was found empty by a group of women followers. Now that women were the finders of the empty tomb is hard to explain if it's being made up. Uh, the testimony really wasn't accepted in, uh, very well in the first century. Uh, it, it, was, it was near worthless and only in the most extreme circumstances was it even accepted. Uh, so that uh, if you're making up a story, you would have certainly somebody like Peter or John or James be the finders of the empty tomb, not women. Uh, so that's part of the legend, or the, uh, the empty tomb sign lacks legendary development. Now, like I said, with the second uh, or the apocryphal gospel of Peter, you know, we're talking about the empty tomb narrative is very fanciful. We don't have that in the gospel narrative. It's very simple. It's very short. Uh, you know, they just keep it very clean, basically. You know, they don't do a whole lot of embellishment. Uh, the empty tomb is also part of the old information passed on by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, the creed in 1 Corinthians 15 is amazing because it's dated three to eight years after the crucifixion itself. And so we have a creed of people holding to a resurrection within 
three to eight years after the event, and that's hard to explain by legendary development. It's just not enough time to get rid of all the witnesses and all of the uh, other people. But it wasn't the empty tomb that convinced them of resurrection. It was the appearances of Christ that convinced them of resurrection. On multiple occasions, over multiple locales, over multiple period of 40 days, he appeared not only to disciples, but skeptics and enemies. That's really important because you can say something like, well, the disciples, they were just in religious fervor. Peter may have had an hallucination or something like that, and so all the other disciples had hallucinations of Jesus. But group hallucinations? That doesn't happen. Hallucinations are interior. Those are subjective. You can't have a objective hallucination. Well, this brings us to the conclusion there because, well, not the conclusion, but yeah. the fact that uh, Jesus, well, we said that Jesus claimed to be, you know, his claims were miraculously confirmed by God. So then therefore Jesus is God because if he claimed to be God and he was confirmed by God that leads to the conclusion that Jesus is God. Exactly, yeah, the conclusion follows from the premises. Right, right. And that leads us to the next one. And number 10, whatever Jesus teaches is true, which makes yeah. sense. Well, yeah, because if he's God, uh, one of the arguments we didn't get to was dealing with the moral argument. Actually, that was a show I did with you a long time ago. <laughs> it was dealing yeah. with God's moral nature. Yeah. Well, if God is perfectly moral, he cannot lie. He cannot yeah. tell an untruth, Hebrews 6.14, for example, the God that cannot lie. Now, if that's the case, Jesus is also morally perfect, being God. As such, he can't lie. He's morally perfect. And so whatever he teaches is true. He is and incapable of lying. One of the things he taught was point 11, Jesus taught that the Bible is the Word of God. Absolutely. He taught that the Old Testament had divine authority and perishability. It was inspired. It was unbreakable. It is the Word of God. It has ultimate supremacy. It is inerrant. And it is historically reliable. I mean, you get an idea. He had a high view of Scripture. Yeah. Now, not only that, he also promised the New Testament. Uh, in John 14 through 16, we're told that uh, the Holy Spirit will lead the disciples into all truth to bring to remembrance all that he has taught them. Now, they also claim Scripture among themselves. Peter talks about Paul. Uh, he calls Paul's uh, writing Scripture. Paul uh, is interesting because whenever he's quoting Deuteronomy, he also adds a passage from Luke in 1 Timothy, or, uh, yeah, 1 Timothy 5.18. And so, wait a minute, is Luke also Scripture? And so you have kind of like this internal uh, corroboration that, yeah, the whole New Testament is also Scripture and it is God-breathed. Well, if that's the case, then the Old Testament and New Testament is Scripture, yeah. and Jesus taught the Bible is the Word of God. That is it. That's but the now the number 12. 12. Therefore, it is true that the Bible is the Word of God. Anything opposed to it is false. That's it. Now, I just want to go over this real quick again, just list all 12 of them. Okay. Truth about reality is knowable. The opposite of true is false. It is true that the theistic God exists. If God exists, then miracles are possible. Miracles can be used to confirm a message from God. The New Testament is historically reliable. The New Testament says that Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus' claim to be God was miraculously confirmed. Therefore, Jesus is God. Whatever Jesus teaches is true. Jesus taught that the Bible is the Word of God. Therefore, it is true that the Bible is the Word of God. So yep. those are the 12 points in a nutshell. Yep. So now we're going to have a... If we have a couple minutes left, a few minutes left, okay. we're going to talk about some of the objections, because All of right. course they're objections. The first one is, you were talking about truth. Yes. The objection is, there is no such thing as truth. And since people can't agree on what things are actually true, isn't it then the case that there is no such thing as truth? If, I, if me and you can't agree on what is truth, then how could we say that there is such a thing as truth? What was the first part of that question? What is truth? <laughs> or there is no such thing There's as no truth? There is no such thing as truth. Is that true? 
Mm. That's pretty much that's the, the objection. Is that true? If it is, then it defeats itself. Right. If it's not, then there is truth. Right. That and it doesn't need to be any more elaborate than that. It's a self-defeating statement to say that there is no truth. Then how come people can't agree on what is true? Well, just be an error. I mean, that's okay. That, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you can, just, you can just be wrong on certain things. The fact that people disagree doesn't mean there's not truth. In fact, the question is not, is there truth? The question is, what is true? That's the real question. And in fact, if there is no truth, why are they arguing in the first place? The only reason that you argue in the first place is because you think your position is true and you're trying to convince them of your position. Mm. So if there's no truth, then what's the whole point in talking? It doesn't matter if that's the case. Right. So... Now, you were also talking about the cosmological argument, and that's yes. the argument that God brought the universe into existence. Yes. He brought basically what we call ex nihilo. He created the universe out of nothing. Right. Now, if I can say that God always existed, mm -hmm. then why can't I also say, why isn't it just as feasible that the universe always existed? Because I've had this discussion with atheists who would say, well, you're positing a uh, always existing, eternal existing God. Why can't I posit an eternal existing universe? Well, logically you can, you just have no scientific evidence to support that position. And that's the problem for atheism right now. Anthony Kennedy, uh, an Oxford philosopher, said that, you know, the Big Bang is a problem for it, and I'm paraphrasing him, but he says, you know, because if you're an atheist, you got to hold that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. Well, we've already discovered that nothing can't produce something. Something comes from something. So what the atheist is saying is that, wait a minute, I believe that something can come from nothing. And the Christian is saying, no, I believe something came from something. The universe came from God. It was created by God. But now the atheist point here is probably going to be, no, no, the universe is eternal. Right. 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 I would like to see the scientific evidence that the universe is eternal. In fact, at the beginning of the 20th century, that was the majority position for Scientists was that the universe is eternal, but there is no scientific evidence. We've gone over that with the surge, second law of th thermodynamics, the expansion of the universe, radiation echo, uh, the galaxy seeds, uh, Einstein's theory of relativity, the Kalam cosmological argument. All these things point to a beginning of the universe. And so for the atheists, they have to grapple with the position or how did the universe come from nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing at all? Yeah. And in, if you're going to say, because nothing made it, uh, that's a very, <laughs> that's a very intellectually unsatisfying position. Yeah. Here's another one that I've, I've heard from my atheist friends. You talked about design as, as being evidence for God, because right. we look at design. So if there's design, then it must be a designer. Okay. Well, I've had some of my atheist friends tell me, tell me, I don't see design. We look at something and our mind imposes design on it but there is no design there in and, of, in and of itself. Okay, well we have to ask yourself what things need to be in place for there to be design? And there seems to be two things that must uh, take place. There needs to be specificity and complexity for design, because if you have one or the other, then I agree, there doesn't seem to be design. Uh, this concept isn't too difficult. This is what allows archeologists to know the difference between a spearhead and just a, a river rock, uh, you know, because it has certain qualities about it. 
if we go to, you know, we're just walking along in the desert and we come across the Grand Canyon, let's say. The Grand Canyon is extremely complex. In fact, I doubt there's anywhere in the universe, any other ravines that have exactly the same mold, the same rock formations, the exact same, uh, you know, down to the minutest detail, exactly the same as the Grand Canyon. That's extremely complex, but it's not specific. We know from observation of wind and rain that that's how it would do. But now let's say we're walking a little bit further and we come across a, uh, let's say Mount Rushmore. Oh my, what an unusual formation from water and wind erosion. No, there's something different about Mount Rushmore with the four president's heads on it than the Grand Canyon. Well, what is it? Well, it is complex and it's specific. We know that, the, um, that Mount Rushmore has a creator. There's somebody that sculpted that. But uh, we don't have that with uh, the Grand Canyon. Now let's move this right here to the design of life, or let's, let's start even broader. Let's say the anthropic principles of the universe. Now, explain what that is for us. The anthropic principles. These right here are the conditions that need to be necessary that allow life to exist in the universe. Uh, science has shown us that at the initial explosion of the Big Bang, certain conditions had to be in place that if they were tweaked in just the minutest detail, the conditions for life would not be in place for, the, uh, for life to exist in the universe. For example, at the explosion, if it had expanded faster by one part, and oh gosh, a hundred, I mean, it's a one with hundreds of zeros behind it. If it had expanded at that rate, then uh, no galaxies would have formed. It would have just expanded too quickly. If it had expanded slower by one part, just a little bit, it would have collapsed back in on itself. Well, that's just one. Whenever we ask questions like, why is gravity at the exact force that it is? If it was stronger, stars, uh, you know, would be too, you wouldn't have stars. If it was too lax, you still wouldn't have stars. Well, you need stars to form galaxies, planets, and for the, uh, you know, sustaining of life. But these right here are things that we have no uh, theoretical reason why the forces are what they are, the weaker, strong nuclear force, gravity, the expansion of the, the Big Bang. And so all these things point to design. I mean, uh, it lends the evidence that somebody is monkeyed with physics. Yeah. As uh, I think, uh, is it Fred Hoyle or uh, Robert Jaster? No, I can't remember who it was. It was like, you know, you, you come away with the impression that somebody's monkeyed with physics or that. If we deal with, let's say, with life itself, Let's just take a single-celled organism. There's a couple things. Number one, the cell is what has been termed irreducibly complex. If you remove one part of it, it doesn't survive. The famous analogy that's given is a mousetrap. You have uh, six parts to it. You have like the base, the spring, the hammer, the latch, uh, the screw that holds it in, and let's say a staple. If you remove any one of those parts, the mousetrap doesn't work. A cell is exactly the same way. You remove one part of the cell, it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And so, well, Lanny, you're not going to believe this, but we've come time. to the end of another show. Well, this Man. time we did go through the, through the right. 12 points. Well, I'm glad now, we got was, that far. For, for a while, <laughs> I wasn't even sure we are going to get through that, but we, and we even got to do a, a couple of the objections. So I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy. Like you said, we could, All right. we could definitely do five shows. So oh, Lanny man. Wilson talking on the 12 points of Proof Christianity is True. Once again, thank you for being on the show. That will end this episode of Giving an Answer. Be sure to join me again next time. And until then, goodbye. And God bless.
Yeah.